G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We're back and it's great to be back. It's also great to have a front, but we are back for the third season of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And just like any TV show, the third season is where things really improve. Yeah, that's right. It's the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And we are super excited to launch this third season with our introductory episode, which will reconnect us with Genesis chapter three and get us ready for what we're going to be diving into in this third season of the show. Did you miss us? Because we certainly missed you. That's nice, Chris. I missed you too, mate. Well, I was, wasn't actually talking to you, Tim. I was talking to... Uh, lovely audience i was saying that we missed them yeah but you, you miss me too right oh you're so desperate for affection but i hear from you pretty much every week so i don't really get to miss you but we do get time to miss them okay well well, well that's all right then. but um isn't that the same for our audience you, you missed them indeed i did um and i also missed out on going to the recent toy fair which is a bit of a bummer so uh that was cancelled due to the covid uh, restrictions that are happening in our lovely state but nevertheless i did manage to go to one of my favorite comic shops recently and pick up a bundle of uh good stuff you know that's one of my favorite things to do is to rifle through the the back issue bins and discover some treasures anyway that was a okay bit of a well segue. Uh, way to change the subject anyway uh yeah i'm happy to hear that you missed me and that's great because i couldn't do the show without you man you really make all the difference well i don't know about that but that's very nice of you to say and i appreciate and tolerate you well speaking of tolerating <laughs> i wanted to say thanks for posting that episode of the commentarians podcast with me when we did our feature on the eternals movie that was really great, and I think you contributed heaps of good stuff that made that discussion a lot more interesting. Uh, yes, well, as you know, I am a comic geek, so I think that's a, a wonderful occasion where both of our passions uh, collided. But uh, you certainly summed it up when you said tolerating, because I had to sit through that film three times, but I'm glad that uh, it was all worth it in the end. Speaking of Eternals... Actually, we did get some good feedback from that show, and I got a question about something someone saw in the movie, and which I mentioned without explaining, and that is the scene where the Eternals are in Babylon in the year 575 BC, and we get to see the glorious vision of the walls of the city of Babylon, and they're all painted blue. So we had a listener asking, why did they paint it blue? And I thought that was a pretty cool question, and coming from someone who's obviously doing some thinking about these things and trying to get their mindset in the ancient world to better understand what's going on. And so I thought, well, in answer to that question, I should just mention that the color blue is actually quite popular in the ancient world, despite the fact that much of the ancient world didn't actually have a word for blue. They literally didn't know what blue was. What do you mean they didn't know what blue was? What would they say if they saw a Smurf? Probably, oh my goodness, uh, that's a Smurf. Uh, <laughs> Obviously they painted the walls blue. I'm pretty sure they knew what blue was. What are you talking about? Well, let, let me put it like this. We tend to think of a range of shades on a colour palette. Uh, more often than not, we use what they call a colour wheel. And a certain area within a section of that colour wheel, we give a name that we associate with that range of shades. And we have names for the variations within those colours. So as an example, we have red. And within that group that we call red, we would have a bit of pink and deep burgundy and maybe some purple and Anything in between, maybe a little orange. 
But those colours all fall within a broad range that we're happy to call red. But if you go a bit too far towards any other colour, then what we consider to be red might be closer to blue or yellow or something like that. At some point, we make an arbitrary line and we decide that if you go past that line, you're really getting into a different colour group and then you give it a different name. But in other cultures, and certainly throughout different periods in time, people have had different ideas about what groups of shades are given a particular name. So those arbitrary lines just fall in different places in the spectrum. And we have to remember that the spectrum itself, as a colour wheel, is really an artificial construct, which is a relatively late invention. It came from Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century. Maybe the group that we call red might include some really dark purple, that actually doesn't have a lot of magenta in it, but a bit more cyan. And so it starts to look more like what we know as blue. But that's just an arbitrary border in the colour palette that's been shifted to a different position to where we would place it. And those borders between colour groups can shift quite dramatically so that you end up with things like the sky being described as the colour of red wine or even referred to as green. Green is nice. I like to dig the hue. We have historical precedent for references like that from famous writers in history. And they're not being dramatic or poetic necessarily, but they are using names for colour groups that contain a range of shades that we would normally split into different parts of the palette. So why don't ancient people have a word for blue? Well, it turns out that when you look around at the world around us in terms of its natural features and formations, we don't actually get a lot of things that are by definition the colour blue. And you might say, well, yeah, what about water? What about the sky? And I'm going to say to you, well, if you get yourself a handful of the air or a cup full of water, it's not going to look like it's blue, is it? Most of the time in the Middle East, water just looks brown. To put it quite simply, ancient people really didn't have a category for a colour that doesn't have its own essence in commonly experienced nature. You can pick up a red rock and see that it's red. You can make red colour on things by rubbing that rock on any surface, but you can't take water and make something blue. You can't use the air to apply blue colour to something in the ancient world. So where did they get these blue colours from then? If they're painting the walls of Babylon blue, they must be getting blue paint from somewhere and probably not dead Smurfs. Yeah, of course. They're manufacturing blue colour, usually from particular sea creatures that they find and smush into bits, and there's a lot of work involved in doing that because it comes in such small quantities. So to be able to get that colour from these sea creatures, and we're in Babylon, the Greek islands, basically involved an awful lot of slave labour to be able to do the volume of work required to get a little bit of blue pigment. At least that's the way they get blue colouring for garments and things like that. But the blue bricks that you see on the famous Ishtar Gate of Babylon were actually not dyed or painted. The bricks were glazed as a part of the finishing process. And one ingredient of the glaze was a mineral that we call cobalt. So that means a lot of mining was involved in extracting the cobalt ore that gave the bricks their blue shine. Again, slave labour. One reason people say that the bricks were glazed in this particular blue colour was because of the resemblance of the finished product to a precious stone known as lapis lazuli, which was rare and expensive and symbolic of divinity. By the way, if you're in the ancient Near East and you want to get some lapis lazuli, guess what? Slave labour. Anyway, the reason people say that is because they're materialists. The lapis lazuli stone is valuable not only because it's rare and expensive, because its colour makes it representative of the heavens or the deep waters. It's the same reason why the Babylonians glazed their bricks in a cobalt blue colour, which means they're not trying to make the bricks look like gemstones. They were just trying to apply the same symbolisms that the gemstones inherited to the bricks that they built the city walls with. 
The colour blue has deep connections to royalty, which in turn, as we know, has strong connections to divinity. Because in the ancient world, the king was considered to be the representative of the local god. So we have gods, we have royalty, we have this particular colour, and the colour comes to be associated with the unreachable, unobtainable, inaccessible realm of the gods. And now we consider the city of Babylon, the pinnacle of divine wisdom and technology, the place where the gods bestow their favour upon its inhabitants. The king is there, and that means that the god is present to bring his favour upon the people. This colour naturally bears correlation to the colour of the sky and the colour of waters, which, of course, are both representative of the divine abode, which is what made the lapis lazuli stone so valuable. And it represents the place where mortals cannot live unless by divine sanction. So that's why the city of Babylon was painted to symbolically represent the divine abode. And we might think of that as heaven, like in the sky, but this is Babylon. So we actually have to turn the cosmology upside down and consider that this is actually the great deep or the Abzu, which is the dwelling place of the great gods, according to the Babylonians. Incidentally, before, when we were looking at cosmology in season one of the podcast, we looked at a similar biblical image in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10 where the throne of God is considered to be above some kind of clear crystalline expanse. We talked about how it just means that it's impenetrable and invisible, not solid. Babylonians do the same thing with this lapis lazuli imagery. So that's a bit of trivia or something interesting, at least from the ancient world, that we picked up from watching Eternals, and it ties in nicely to our discussion that we've been having consistently throughout this podcast from day one, which emphasises the role of the Babylonian context of the primeval history in our hermeneutical approach to the text. But we're going to deviate a little bit from our focus on Babylon and its role in this text so that we can turn our attention to Egypt and consider the influence that Egyptian history and culture has had on the Israelite people in the distant past and in times more directly related to the context of the author of our text and his audience. Back in season one, in some of our earliest episodes of the show, we talked a little bit about the influence of Egyptian creation texts on the writing of the biblical creation narratives. We're going to see now that Egypt had a bigger role to play in the formation of this text than simply polemical fodder. The other consideration that we have to bring to our study of Egyptian influence here is that perhaps some Egyptian ideas were used constructively rather than being subverted, and I don't think that is more evident anywhere in the primeval history than when we consider the serpent of Genesis 3. So naturally, we're going to talk about the serpent. We'll go deep into that one. Awesome, and we're going to learn how this story continues the narrative of the experiences of the, the man and the woman who represent all of us and thereby tells us a story about the common experience of humanity. We'll talk about the nature of humanity as created scripturally in comparison to the nature of humanity according to certain influential traditions that arose later and that means talking about different kinds of garments and what they mean we're going to get into blessings and curses and pronouncements of destiny how they work and we will talk about what those statements mean for each of the characters in the story and for the environment in which they live we're going to talk about punishment and exile in the wake of rebellion and we're going to see the first hints of a pattern that will begin to repeat throughout scripture as we continue to read our Bibles. So there's a lot to cover. And that's without all the extra bits that we like to throw in on this show. As usual, we'll be taking your giant questions and we will dive deeper beyond the pages of my book, Answers to Giant Questions. We will get into spiritual warfare in our giant warfare segment. And occasionally, I'm sure, I'll end up spouting off on some weird rant about something that really gets my goat. 
And of course, Chris and I will try and keep that as entertaining as informative as we can. So to kick things off for this season, I just wanted to read a couple of passages from the New Testament that refer back to Genesis 3, because as we saw in our first episode of the podcast, way back in season one, the New Testament authors used the primeval history in some important ways to deliver truths that matter to all of us. And if we're going to read the Bible the way that a first century believer would read it, there's no better way to do that than by following the example of Christ and the apostles. Yeah, and I like it when we do this. It, it sets the stage for the season to come. Yeah, it's really important to get grounded in this stuff so we don't get lost in the details. To get us started, let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm reading from the CSB. We read verses 1 to 3. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Sounds like something I say to you all the time, Chris. Yes, do put up with me. <laughs> for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what we see here in this passage is that Paul is making a very important point about devotion to God exclusively, and we talked about the language of faithfulness and apostasy last season when we looked at the relationship between the man and the woman in Genesis 2. So back then I mentioned that this was the kind of language that comes up in covenant agreements. So it's interesting to see that Paul continues to think about our relationship with Jesus Christ in covenantal terms. And yet, Paul returns to the concept of deception with regard to the events of Genesis 3 as he discusses this departure from loyalty. So in Paul's mind, it seems that he connects apostasy with the results of deception. He's telling us that false teachers can lure us out of relationship with God and therefore out of covenant with him. I might just suggest that that does not sound very much like a once saved, always saved mentality. It sounds very much like remaining faithful to Christ requires constant attention rather than a one-and-done action sometime in the past. In fact, it sounds very much like Paul, as a post-exilic Jew, is conscious of the reality of apostasy and the judgment that follows. Because that's what the exile was and still continues to be in a way. Exactly. And why wouldn't a Jew in the first century have thought, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the front of their mind, Paul knows that his hearers are familiar with Genesis 3. And they know what comes after the deception. All right, let's look at another passage now. This time we're going to go to Romans chapter 5. And again, I'm reading from the CSB, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because it all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, this one is tricky because many traditional readings of this passage would give us a theology that suggests that mankind was born immortal. But we have to remember not to put our theology before the text. When we were reading Genesis 1 and 2, we learned that mankind existed before the garden and one man was chosen and placed in it. Paul is obviously aware of that, which is why he says, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Because Adam's the guy who was put in charge and the other humans outside the garden were not placed in that position. But Adam serves as their federal head and is representative of them toward God, which means that his transgression becomes theirs as well. This man was already mortal, and like his peers around him who had no commandment and therefore were guilty of no sin, he was already subject to physical death even before the transgression. And we discussed earlier when God speaks of death as a consequence of disobedience, he's referring to the death of function. This first man, who Paul identifies as Adam, had a job to do as a particular representative of God, and his failure brought about a functional death the inability to represent God because his actions did not align with God's word. So given that Paul doesn't have in mind physical death as the primary reference to the fate of Adam, we're able to read his commentary in Romans 5 in a new light. As we discussed earlier on this podcast, and it was repeated almost ad nauseum in our last season, the man in Genesis 2 doesn't get a name in that text because he functions as the archetype of all humanity. And that means that we should all see ourselves in him so it doesn't matter that Paul now refers to him by name as Adam. Of course, we know later on when we get to Genesis 5, we'll be introduced to Adam properly. But the point here is that we should all see ourselves in him because he represents all of us. I might just note as well that that's not a unique concept to Paul. You can actually go through Second Temple literature uh, for a couple of hundred years before Paul comes along. And indeed, after Paul, uh, later in the first century, you still get this view of Adam as an archetype by other authors of Second Temple period literature. So just wanted to point out that that's not an innovation on Paul's part. He's just another uh, part of the, the product of that culture, and that's how people were reading it. And I think that that speaks volumes of how uh, we should be reading it too. So this representation then uh, extends to all humans, whether in the garden or outside of it, which brings all under the condemnation of sin. This is why people without the law still require salvation from the consequences that the law demands of sin. Paul is reminding us that the obligation of the first man was the same as the nation Israel, in that they were supposed to bring a functional representation of God to all mankind, and not just to keep it to themselves. When Paul refers to the time between Adam and Moses, he is referring to the time that precedes the giving of the law at Sinai. 
Naturally, he's not insisting that people were only subject to physical bodily death in that period exclusively, as if to say that nobody died before Adam and nobody died after Moses. That's what he's not saying. But theologians like to pick up on the idea that death reigned from Adam and extrapolate from that to suggest that there were no people before Adam or that man was previously immortal before the fall in the garden. Neither of those concepts are explicit from what Paul is saying, and you don't get it from a close reading of the source text, as we've already demonstrated. This is why theological creeds and confessions have to come secondary to the text of Scripture. The point that Paul makes, however, is that sin exists where there is law. And given that the only law in the Eden narrative is the commandment, thou shalt not eat of it, then it should be fairly reasonable to conclude that the commandment functions as law and thereby condemns Adam. Therefore, we all stand condemned, Take note that Paul stops at Moses. Yeah, so why does Paul stop with Moses when he says the death reigned from Adam to Moses? If we are all guilty of sin through the transgression of Adam, then doesn't Paul mean to say the death reigned from Adam and continues till now? I think the key to answering that question lies in the function of the law. When God introduces the law and officially forms the nation of Israel, he has in fact created a new son for himself who will represent him from that time forward. This is why we have the reference in Hosea, which is also used as a reference to Jesus. In Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So we have in the birth of Israel a fresh opportunity for the people of God to obtain life by faithfulness to God through the law. This is a reenactment of Eden, and I've spoken before about the various parallels between Eden and Sinai. So if you really want to dive into that reenactment concept for something to do, I promise you it's very rewarding and well worth your time. And of course, the pattern repeats with Jesus himself as the Son of God, as Matthew makes clear by his use of that Hosea reference. And Paul goes on to say that if one man can bring sin into the world, then one man can also, through righteousness, restore all mankind to everlasting life. And that should be fairly straightforward although a lot of people get hung up on what would appear to be Paul's negative view of the law when he says that the law came along to multiply the trespass. That makes it sound like God was making an effort to condemn people or that the law was ineffective in bringing people to righteousness. After all, if people are only guilty of breaking the law where law exists, doesn't the absence of law mean innocence for those without the law? It, it makes it sound like Paul's setting up the law in opposition to Christ in order to show Christ as superior to the law and as superseding the law. It sounds like Paul would have us do away with law and focus on grace exclusively. But that would have us forget that Paul was a Jew, and not only a Jew, but a Pharisee, and not only a Pharisee, but one of the elite within that group, who prided themselves on the primacy of Israel, the sanctity of the law, and the necessity of its observance. Paul has absolutely no intention of doing away with Israel, the law, obedience to the law, or even casting it in a bad light. So what does that mean then? Uh, what are we supposed to do with the law? Well, we need to remember that the law was given to Israel and not to the Gentiles. Likewise, the commandment in the Garden of Eden was given to Adam and not to those outside the Garden. What we should see in the giving of the law at Sinai and the commandment for Israel to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is an expansion of God's redemptive plan beyond one man or one nation and extending to all peoples of the world. The law doesn't only multiply the trespass, but it paves the way to a multiplication of redemption, because without the law, which is the terms of relationship with God, innocence doesn't suffice. If you don't know the law, you don't know God. The law is designed to teach you how to live. It is the way that you live. 
That is the standard by which you'll be judged. The law is not about the letter of the law. It's a code of conduct. It's the terms of relationship. And the things that you do in that relationship really matter. You can't just believe and not do. Remember, this is functional. If you don't do what is expected of you as God's child, you're not being one of his children. Gentiles are not judged by the observance of law specific to Israel, but they are judged by the manner in which they live in keeping with the spirit of the law. This is why we're told that faith without works is dead. So the law is good for Israel because it reinstated the function of Israel as priests to the world, a function that Jesus Christ now performs on behalf of all humanity. And it was the Jews in the first century who brought us that good news and enabled Gentiles all over the world to be restored into the family of God. And that's why it's so very important that we never divorce the law from the plan of God today. Not that the law of Israel is to be observed by Gentiles, but that the law should instruct the Jews to bring the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. And that means that we all share in everlasting life through Jesus Christ and salvation from the wrath to come. Hopefully that makes clear why Paul considers the Eden narrative so important in light of his mission to bring the gospel to the people of the nations through Israel. And that goes a long way towards helping us to understand why it should be important to us today. It's important also that we recognise that Paul's use of the Eden narrative is not a repurposing of the text. He's not doing something different to what the author of the primeval history intended. What we're going to see as we continue our study through the primeval history over the course of this podcast series is that the message of the primeval history is consistent as an initial premise that guides our interpretation of the rest of Scripture, which is why Paul makes use of it in his preaching to the Gentiles. So that should give us confidence that we're reading this correctly and it will make our Bible reading on the whole that much more fruitful. That makes a lot of sense, Tim, as always. Thank you very much. And I think if our listeners really sit with this for a while and soak it in uh, and maybe go back and read through the text carefully and think about all the stuff that we've been uh, discussing about for the last two seasons, they're going to be really well grounded for understanding the rest of their Bible the way that Jesus and the apostles did. And that's going to be so helpful for um, assisting them and living out their faith. Um, so that's all been really good as always, but I think it's time for a change of scenery now. So why don't we do some Q&A to kick off season three? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. I've got a question here. Brooke asked on, uh, on our Facebook group if Job 26 verse 5 had anything to do with mermaids? Mermaids. Well, that's a good question. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, okay, let's read it. I got a few different versions here, which is always good advice for trying to understand any Bible passage. Looking at Job 26, verse 5. Uh, in the King James Version, it says, Dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. In the CSB, it says the departed spirits tremble beneath the waters and all that inhabit them. In Young's literal translation, it says the Rephaim are formed beneath the waters, also their inhabitants. And in the Vulgate, it says Eke gigantes gimunt sub aquis et qui habitant cum ice. So I guess the short answer to that question is no, because what Job 26 verse 5 refers to is, in fact, in Hebrew, the Rephaim, 
which the Young's translation was kind enough to transliterate for us there, and that's a completely different thing, which I've written about extensively in my book. And we have touched on it in various other episodes of the podcast. You might have gotten a clue from the Latin which borrows the Greek gigantes to refer to the giants, but what the heck, let's talk about mermaids anyway. I, I can't uh, continue this discussion without thinking about Zoolander. But g'day, folks, and welcome to the Answers to Mermaid Questions podcast. No, that's a bit uh, gender-biased, isn't it? Merfolk. It sounds even worse. Yeah, that, that's probably a thing. <laughs> but uh, thing or no thing, I'm, I'm not saying it. Um, before I start, I should probably just say that this subject has absolutely nothing to do with the Mesopotamian Apkalu which are the men depicted as half-fish creatures in ancient Mesopotamian art. There are no obvious points of connection between those and what we're talking about in this discussion outside of a similar appearance in some iconography, but again, I talk about those in my book if you want more on that, and it's got nothing to do with state-run amusement parks on the Florida coast or any other kind of choreographed underwater dance for that matter. And speaking of spontaneously bursting into song underwater, segue... Long before Disney brought us precocious teenage girls wearing nothing but clamshells, uh, Hans Christian Andersen would be rolling in his grave, 19th century scholars were debunking supernatural claims about mysterious hybrid sea creatures. They wrote them off as nothing more than embellished allegorical stories about prostitutes in seaports and fishing towns who encouraged seafarers to waste away their hard-earned money until they could no longer afford to leave the town, thus leaving them stranded on land cut off from their means of making a living where they would eventually die, poor and starving. Probably. So the story is about bloodthirsty, animalistic creatures that lured men to their deaths through their beauty. And enticing singing voices and clamshell bras were really just based on ordinary seaside life. Well, yeah, you have that, but then you also have so-called eyewitness accounts. Some of them quite famous. For example, Christopher Columbus claimed that he had personally sighted mermaids in his travels. But, of course, most people are going to say they were probably just dolphins or manatees or something of that nature. So we've had the naturalistic explanations, but, of course, as is always the case, these weird hybrid creatures have deep roots in mythology stretching back many thousands of years. And if you're listening to this podcast, you should know that that's because more often than not, what we're actually looking at is some kind of reference to divine or semi-divine beings that in many cases really did exist. So what do we do with that? I don't know, Tim. What do we do with that? Well, another thing that you'll be familiar with now if you've been following the podcast for a while is that things tend to get completely inverted when we hit the, the medieval period. Because it's about that time that the image of half-human, half-fish creatures gets introduced in substitution of previous imagery, which was usually based on birds. That's right, the little mermaid of ancient Greece would have actually been a bird with a woman's head. And these are the creatures that the ancient Greeks called the sirens. The sirens were made famous in that epic Greek poem, Homer's Odyssey in which Odysseus survives the temptations of the sirens by having his shipmates tie him to the bow of his vessel so that he cannot be enticed into the water and lured to his death, even though he hears their song. Tradition has it that if anyone survived hearing the sirens' song, the sirens would die, and so they lost their feathers, fell from the sky, and were drowned in the sea. So because Odysseus heard the sirens' song and survived, that was the end of the sirens. So maybe it was this combination of the nautical aspect of these stories and the idea of the sirens falling into the sea that made them endure 
and stories as creatures who lived on or under the water. Yeah, but again, the original story of the sirens began with these part human, part bird creatures. And listeners to this podcast will, of course, know that in season one, we discussed the concept behind the notion of birds and fish as symbolic of some kind of divine beings. So whether it's birds or fish, it doesn't really matter that much. The bottom line is, this isn't genetic engineering. With our ancient Near Eastern worldview glasses on and simply looking at the image of a creature that is semi-human and combined with some creature that traditionally features as symbolic of the divine, we shouldn't be surprised that in some of the Greek mythology, the origin of the sirens is the union between Uranus, or heaven, and Ge, or earth. So again, this is very much like the origin of the giants, or as we know them in the Bible, the Nephilim. And that's going to make people prick up their ears and say, well, there you go. That connection to Job chapter 26 is legitimate. Because whether you're talking about the Rephaim or the Nephilim, the word there in the Greek means giants. So there you have it. There's our connection. Well, the problem with that is that even though the Bible presents many opportunities, no Hebrew term used to designate giants is ever translated in the Septuagint as sirens. So you don't have anyone translating from Hebrew to Greek and using sirens to refer to giants. This is despite the fact that translators who knew Greek and were familiar with Greek literature were aware of the stories of both giants and of sirens. Obviously, they knew enough to know that nobody ever confuses those terms. But sirens do appear in the Septuagint half a dozen times. And the use of the term sirens continued in the Latin Bible, but maintained the same usage and word meaning as found in the Greek. Jerome did that when he wrote the Vulgate. He's done that in Isaiah 13, verse 22, and in Jeremiah 50, verse 39. Only two occasions where the Septuagint actually had six. In the English for those passages, we would have jackals or owls. Both of those passages speak about nocturnal desert creatures, so you can rule out your mermaids immediately. But again, the idea of flying night creatures that have a kind of demonic element comes up to give the idea of some kind of nameless, unclean spirit. And didn't we talk about that recently when we discussed uh, Lilith last season? Yeah, exactly. So for the Greco-Roman world, Lilith was a kind of siren or some entity like a siren, and no, Lilith was not Mary Magdalene's alter ego, so apologies to fans of The Chosen. Uh, These creatures, as we discussed before, were not embodied. They were spoken of in material terms because that's how you describe an abstraction in the ancient world. They don't have wings and long hair and birds' feet and girls' faces. They are entities that share the characteristics of birds and women. They fly because they're disembodied spirits. They have a human head because they're sentient, intelligent beings. They move silently in the dark because they're invisible. They're not real physical hybrid animals. So the best translations are those that are content to allow the reader to interpret the imagery rather than putting Greek myth into our heads. And they give us a more direct translation of the Hebrew so that we can interpret the images for ourselves. That's an important thing to keep in mind when we consider references to sirens in translations of other important Jewish works. Specifically, I'm talking about the use of that term in translations of First Enoch. We're going there because First Enoch has a lot to do with our core subject matter on this show, that being the giants, and because to some interpreters it seemed that there was a connection between the sirens and the Nephilim. Quoting from the R.H. Charles translation of First Enoch, this is chapter 19. The whole chapter is only three verses. And Uriel said to me, 
Here shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women, and their spirits assuming many different forms are defiling mankind and shall lead them astray into sacrificing to demons as gods. Here shall they stand till the day of the great judgment in which they shall be judged till they are made an end of. And the women also of the angels who went astray shall become sirens. And I, Enoch, alone saw the vision, the ends of all things, and no man shall see as I have seen. Now, I don't mind the R.H. Charles version. I think it's pretty good in general, but I want to compare it now against a couple of others. Remember that good advice I gave you earlier. Here's another version. This is a modern English version translated by Andy McCracken. And Uriel said to me, the spirits of the angels who were promiscuous with women shall stand here, and they, assuming many forms, made men unclean and will lead men astray, so that they sacrifice to demons as gods, and they will stand there until the great judgment day, on which they will be judged, so that an end will be made of them. And their wives, having led astray the angels of heaven, will become peaceful. And I, Enoch, alone saw the sight, the ends of everything, and no man has seen what I have seen. So you'll notice that there are no sirens in this text, and in fact there seems to be no description of any kind of entities at all. We've gone from having a collective noun to having an adjective here. In the place of the sirens, we instead find that these wives will become peaceful. One more time, and this time I'll just give you verse 2. This one comes from an app that you can download as a translation of First Enoch. Unfortunately, it does not provide any information as to who's done the translation. But it says this, Being numerous in appearance, made men profane and caused them to err, so that they sacrificed to devils as to gods. For in the great day there shall be a judgment with which they shall be judged, until they are consumed, and their wives also shall be judged, who led astray the angels of heaven, that they might salute them. And obviously there are more versions available, but that should give you a bit of an idea. There are clearly some differences here between the translations that should tell us that there's some difficulty with the text. We have to remember that in the case of First Enoch, and in particular the book of the Watchers, which is the first 36 chapters of that book, what we read in English is usually a translation of an Ethiopic text that is a translation of a Greek text, that is a translation of an Aramaic text that was written by Jews in about the 3rd century BC. Translation is hard, and the manuscripts aren't even entirely preserved. So we have three variants here to consider. One says the women shall become sirens. Another says the wives shall become peaceful. And another says the wives shall be judged. So what exactly is the fate of these females in the text? Maybe the Charles translation is working with the Greek term that forms the basis of the word sirens. The word sierra, from which siren is derived, means binder or entangler. That's kind of what happens when you jump off a boat that's dragging a big net behind it. But more to the point, I think what the text is supposed to be telling us is that these women, like their male counterparts, were to be bound for judgment. And that would certainly have the effect of making them peaceful, or perhaps subdued at least. So if we read that verse from First Enoch chapter 19, verse 2, and consider that the word sirens in the Charles translation is supposed to be something like bound for judgment. Not only does it make better sense in the immediate context of the chapter, but it eliminates the weird insertion of some kind of hybrid race of humans that has no biblical precedent. And we have to remember that First Enoch is a Jewish text, so everything has to have a biblical precedent if it isn't clearly an innovation on the part of the author. And we have no reason to suggest that this is an attempt at innovation. 
but for logical thinkers here, this reading of Charles is going to be unsatisfactory. Firstly, because the word used is sirens, not Sierra. And secondly, because if we have a term that means bound for judgment, why not use it elsewhere? Why use a term loaded with the traditional baggage of bird-like women here? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Were you paying attention to the translations there? Sure it was. You can't prove that it wasn't. But just in case, what did I miss? Ah. See, Charles is the only one to use the term women right there where the others use wives. Okay, so how is that important? What does that mean? Now, what it means is that Charles has the women of the angels here, not the wives of the angels. He's saying that there are female angels who took part in the Genesis 6 rebellion and God turned them into sirens as their punishment. According to Charles, this isn't about the human women who gave birth to the Nephilim. And that's where he differs from the other translators here. That's actually an easy point of confusion because in some languages, and Hebrew does this, you often have the same word for wife as you do for woman. I didn't mention it last season, but you find that in Genesis too. So it wouldn't be hard to take the wives of the angels and read it as the women, that is females, of or among the angels. But if you look at the wider context of those three verses in 1st Enoch 19, it should be obvious that the human women of Genesis 6 are the correct referent which means that Charles has not provided us with the origin of the sirens from the text of Genesis 6. Sorry to let you down there because that would have been super cool, but we just can't do it, not from the biblical text and not from a close reading of 1st Enoch either. No sirens means no mermaids. So there you go. The long answer to this question is also no. <laughs> oh, well, uh, one of these days I'm sure someone will ask about vampires or something along those lines. Um, but there's got to be something in the Bible about that, right? Yeah, well, you just never know where a Bible study is going to take you, Chris. You just never know. That's it from us this week. But stay tuned for more as we continue into Season 3 of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Bye for now. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show in the future we want to be talking about your stories as well not just our own so if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience we want to hear from you and we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful of course this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. It's not fashionable to just have a beard. You've got to groom it.
I work in a lubricant factory, so I'm pretty sure that my beard is pretty well oiled most of the time anyway. Good. That's good to know. We've talked about beards. We've talked about lubrication. There we go. It's only getting better it's from very, here. I'm back in the shed. I've, yep. uh, I've, been, I've been working on the, on the shed. Now uh, I've got a, a functioning workshop here wow. behind me. Nice. Uh, with various uh, power tools that make impressive noises. I've just had a nap. Uh, well, it was only a 10-minute nap. But, uh, you know, I wake up like 20 minutes later. Yes, I like, I like to have a nap. They say you never know when uh, a bolt of lightning is going to strike. But uh, if it was ever going to happen, it's probably now because I'm drinking Pepsi from a Coca-Cola cup. Wow. Oh, forgive me, Father. I was going to make a um, smoothie and then um, I didn't. It's an interesting story. You know, the best thing about that story was the end. The thing to remember, I suppose, was that you had an onion tied to your belt. <laughs> That's right. It was the style at the time.